in a series <clears throat> at the moment. We started at the beginning of the year. Uh, God's big story. It's kind of going from Genesis through to Revelation. The whole history of mankind and uh, seeing what God Sorry, what God was doing, and we recognise. I mean, I can't summarise it every single week. Kind of like gets the summary will get longer as the week goes on. You know, so, but it just, just for those who, who haven't been with us, you know, one of the great things in the Genesis rec- uh, story is God promises a saviour at the very beginning, right? And it has always been Plan A. It wasn't plan B, God having to make up some other kind of method to save the world because man had sinned. It was always God's plan B. He knew plan A, sorry. He always knew the way that man would be. And we've seen him fulfilling his purposes through the time of the patriarchs, through the, the, the uh, Moses leading the people through the wilderness and Joshua leading them to the promised land, receiving the covenants of the commandments and the temple and then the, the, receiving a king and uh, David and his covenant of this king that would last forever. And uh, really that's where we were just before Easter, wasn't it? Where David was the fulfillment of the promise of a king that would rule with God, not in place of God but rule with God over the nation of Israel. And he defeated their enemies and he established Jerusalem as the capital and he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the safety of uh, that capital city of Jerusalem. God denied him, though, the chance of building a temple but gave him a great new promise in the form of that covenant to David that he would raise up someone from David's line to be a king over a kingdom forever. And that was the key thing, isn't it? Say foreshadowing, as we have seen every single week, there's a foreshadowing of the greater things to come. That even in the pinnacle of God's people being in God's place, with God's blessing right there in Jerusalem, with God's chosen king, you know, there was still more to come. There's this coming, this foreshadowing of Jesus, the king of kings, was to come. Well, David had a son, uh, Solomon, and Solomon built the temple that um, David had been denied from building. And um, Solomon wrote a lot of what we would call the wisdom literature. Right? If you think about, we've been looking at kind of various bits of the law, the Torah, um, Pentateuch, the books of Moses at the beginning. We've gone through some of the, some of its history. Uh, and then we're now in a stage where there's the, the wisdom literature, books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. And I'm mainly dealing with uh, Proverbs today. Proverbs is, if you've heard my preaching over the years, you'll know that I always I come back to Proverbs usually once or twice every year, so there's a little series, because there is so much in it. There's so much in the book of Proverbs. And today I want us to consider that book. Proverbs, <coughs> in effect is the Old Testament form of Twitter. Right? How many of you use Twitter? I didn't think you would. One over there, any more than one? Someone younger up there? <laughs> You'd like that I said that, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, yeah, Twitter is kind of one of... How many letters can you use on Twitter? Is it 140 characters or something? 
You don't know. But you can't write anything very long. And in a way, Proverbs is a bit like that. There's lots of, um, you know, short, pithy, memorable statements and observations that communicates, in a way, some of the most profound theological and practical truths. And Proverbs is like that. After a few chapters of introduction, presenting the benefits and beauty of wisdom, um, then they get these hundreds of of short tweets, I think they call them. You know, but we call them proverbs. They're kind of short, pithy things. And because of the nature of those proverbs, in a way, being very short, we tend to kind of hone in on them and close up on them, in a sense, and look closely and study them uh, just for, you know, what they say there. But actually, what we need to do, instead of just looking at each individual tweet, each individual proverb, we need to take a bird's-eye view a satellite view, if you would, and and kind of look down upon the whole thing and remember um, the message of the whole Old Testament. And that's what we've been looking at. The message of the whole Old Testament, in a sense, is a saviour is coming. Right? A saviour is coming. One who will be God's greatest king and God's greatest priest and God's greatest prophet. And different parts of the Old Testament reveal the people of God in their sinful state crying out for a king to bring order into their lives or crying out for a priest to bring forgiveness or crying out for a prophet to bring teaching that would transform their ignorance and help them to think and uh, believe and speak and act rightly as the people of God. Proverbs is part of God's answer to that last cry. It's part of that prophetic. It's the teaching. This is how you live it. Mostly written by Solomon, (coughs) not all of them. But we need to recognize that like all of God's answers, they were provisional and preparatory as well as prophetic of the great redeemer, the great revelation of wisdom itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was able to say of himself in the New Testament, one greater than Solomon is here. And so that's what the perspective we have to hold when we look at these. Proverbs, in a way, grow out of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Kira gave us some teaching on that some weeks ago. The general principles of God's law in those ten statements. But actually what Proverbs does is put each of those commandments, it gives them hands and feet. It gives them eyes and ears. If you can imagine each commandment kind of breaking down into more tiny little things, then it kind of projects how these commandments are going to be worked out in practice. God's law comes alive as we look at the daily life of putting God's word into practice. That's what the Proverbs do. They will speak about what you do in your home and how the marriage should work and how you run your business and how you have this relationship and how you control your finances. Proverbs is just full, packed full of practical truths. Unpacking those principles of God. But at the same time as they kind of diversify or unpack the Ten Commandments, they're also condensing and pointing to the one who is this great wisdom of God himself, 
Jesus Christ. And so, a little later, I'm going to want to share more about Jesus in the, the Proverbs. You know, um, it's the, it gets fleshed out. You see, Solomon was famous, and we read it earlier on. Um, he's famous for asking God for wisdom, isn't it? That's what we read from 1 Kings. And God said he would grant him anything. And Solomon could have just asked for all sorts of stuff, couldn't he? But he says, I, I want wisdom in order to be able to rule your people, to be able to discern what is right or wrong. And, you know, God gave him the wealth and the honour that no other king had had before him or after him. Solomon goes on to build the temple and you know I was wrestling with this I was going to think well should I preach on building the temple should I preach on the glory of the Lord falling there in the temple and and that is really the kind of to me is the highest peak in the Old Testament because sadly it all goes downhill from then on (laughs) you know God's you know things were looking great here were God's people in God's place, the land that God had called them to. Enjoying God's presence and blessings and benefits through the law and through the sacrifices in the temple. With God's king to rule them. Victory over their enemies. Everything looks great. And then even the presence, the glory of God comes and fills the temple. And, wow, it couldn't be better. Everything is great. But it doesn't last despite all his wisdom that God had given to Solomon. Do you know what Solomon did? He married 700 wives. (sighs) Now, I can put my hands up and say one is enough. (laughs) She's not here, she's in the hall. (laughs) Can you imagine being married to seven? I mean, I can imagine why he wanted to do it. There's part of his own physicality that made me want that. It's 300 concubines on top of that as well. But actually, they were his downfall. You know, just because it's there in the Bible doesn't mean to say it's right. Right? People kind of said, oh, well, there you go. Where does it say you have to be monogamous? Well, actually, you do. You're supposed to be. That is God's ideal. The fact that many people in the Old Testament weren't didn't make it right. And it certainly didn't want for, for Solomon because what he has to do then is he has to compromise for all his way. Instead of standing firm, he's written down all this wisdom for us to learn how to live God's way, but he doesn't actually apply it to his own private life. How many preachers and pastors and church leaders need to learn that? Do we live what we preach? Eventually Solomon gives in to the demands of these wives because they come from all different foreign lands and they worship different foreign gods and he not only builds them (coughs) altars but he joins in the worship. May have been the peak of of Israel as a kingdom but it was the beginning also of its disintegration. Well, I want us to consider the Proverbs this morning. 
Let's just think what they are and what they're about for a while. See, information is about facts, right? And knowledge is about fitting related facts together and learning something as a whole. However, wisdom is about using that knowledge well. Let me give you an example. 24-odd years ago, our first son was born. And do you know what I did? I read a book about how to be a father. Yeah? And, um, you know, it gave me, some, it related lots of facts about raising a child. But those facts alone did not mean that I knew what I was doing. In fact, and anybody who's had a number of children will probably learn, it says, yeah, you, you make all the mistakes with the first or second. And then by the time you get to the number four, like us, they just raise themselves. <laughs> or like the man who years ago wanted to do a series of seminars on how to be a parent. He wasn't actually a parent himself. He was a pastor of a church. And he wanted to do ten things about being a good parent. After his first child, he made it ten suggestions to be a good parent. And I think later on he called it, I have no idea what it means to be a parent. (laughs) Well, sometimes like that, isn't it? You can have all the facts. They can be around and have lots of knowledge. But it doesn't mean to say you've got wisdom. Never before has there been so much knowledge available to us. Right? The internet axes, accesses sorry, a, a means of just adding additional knowledge to us. And it's limitless. You go on and you search something and you look there, there's, you, know, you Google something and it's got one and a half million references to something. Well, where do I start then? <laughs> you see, for the Christian, there has never been greater access to information about the Bible and about sound theology. And yet at the same time, both in the church and in the world, I think we might say that wisdom though is in decline. It's far more knowledge, but a lot less wisdom. In some of the most important areas of life, such as raising your children, and dealing with your finances responsibly, and maintaining the healthy relationships and all sorts of things like that, a great many people don't know what to do. People generally just make short-sighted, self-centered decisions and then have to work out the consequences when it all falls apart. Having the right knowledge is vital, but it's not sufficient in itself. Solomon had great wisdom from God. And he wrote it down. And we can benefit from it. But he didn't always apply it in his own personal life. A lot of things I read, read, sorry, when I became a father um, were perfectly adequate. They were perfectly accurate. um, But it was only some time later, years later, did I actually think that I'd grown in some wisdom and some of those things were of benefit to me. I have to confess, just to to let you know, I read this book on parenting 
the day I rushed my wife to hospital. <laughs> well, I think the first book was on how to help her through, through pregnancy and through birth. And by the time that, that happened, none of it applied anymore. <laughs> but it helped in years to come, I hope. You could probably say the same, can you? You know a lot of stuff. I mean, you go to, you go to college, you do, do a degree in something, you learn a lot of knowledge about something. It doesn't mean to say you know what you're doing in it half the time. You've got to actually get down and experience it and apply it, haven't you? One of the things that was crucial in this series of sermons is yet not to make it just a series of lectures of the history of the Old Testament and just kind of pointing things forward, but to actually apply them along the way. And so there's different pastoral applications week by week as we look at these different things. Well, I have to say the pursuit and the practice of wisdom is actually made more challenging by the sheer pace of life. The options now available to us can be so diverse that they in fact become distracting, don't they? And we forget to pay attention to the sheer beauty and simplicity and power of the Word of God. Much of modern life seems to be about adding possessions and adding finances, adding money, adding wealth, adding efficiency, adding health, adding prestige, adding leisure, adding power. It's all about adding more to our lives. And however, the the difference with what the world (coughs) suggests is that a a heart of godly wisdom is the ability to not become distracted by all the things around us. But actually to focus on what is really important. You know, this will be a bugbear of mine. I will always have been saying this for years. You know, we need to distinguish, as the people of God, we need to distinguish the difference between what is urgent and what is important. As a parent, as a worker, as an individual person as a husband, as a wife, you know, as a church member, as a church leader, distinguishing the difference between in urgent and important. We run around trying to do what we think is urgent because it's urgent and needs to be done now. But actually, if we step back and think, was it really important? you find actually an awful lot of it wasn't. And it's because we've been so busy on what we thought was urgent, we haven't done the thing that was important. You know what is important? Brothers and sisters, spending some time with God every day. Finding a little bit of time where you can pray and read God's word and meditate upon it so he feeds your soul. Don't be fed just on a Sunday morning. That's important. Are you so busy that you can't find 30 minutes? Important to spend time working and playing and enjoying your children. Again, the story I've told before, I had to learn a big, big lesson years ago. I was out preaching and teaching nearly every night of the, of the week when I was in North London. And when my son tugged me on the arm and said, Daddy, let's play football. And I was saying, oh, but I've got another sermon to prepare. I need to go and speak. I'm working for the Lord. In fact, I had someone with me this week saying how you never had a day off when you're working for the Lord. And to tell them, that's not right. God gave you a Sabbath. You have to rest. 
I had to learn from my son and just close that Bible and just realize I'm going to go and play football and I'm going to learn to start saying no to some things. Because my son is important. He's now 24 and teaches. And he's following God. It's important things. We need that discernment and it's with wisdom that enables us to see what is important. Husbands and wives, do you spend some quality time together? Alone? Do you spend time with your children? Not just taxiing them around to everywhere. Do you have a friend, a a peer that you can disciple? Remember that we've put it here, haven't we? One of the things we want to do is eat, intentionally disciple someone over a meal. You get someone around and you just chat and you pray and you eat together and you just speak words of encouragement and comfort and build them up. Do we have that in our life? That's important. Not just to give it, to receive it as well. In the midst of all the noise and traffic, these days the data, uh, all the bad advice that's out there, the Bible remains the sole reliable source of unchanging, timeless wisdom. That's why this is important. That's why, you know, when you read it and meditate upon it, it should transform your life. What are you telling me, Lord? What does this tell me about God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What does it tell me about me, a man, that I need to be different? Is there a, a, a command that I should be obeying? Is there a promise that I should hold on to? Is there a fact that I just need to believe in faith? Is there a sin I need to confess? Lord, help me. Speak to me. Again, it's one of our rhythms when we listen to God through his word and by his spirit. Wisdom flows from the Bible and brings clarity to many of the most perplexing issues of life. But that doesn't mean that we can casually read the Proverbs. I don't know if anybody heard of a, 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 a a man called Kenneth Taylor. Does that name ring any bells to someone? He's the man who wrote the Living Bible. Right? Not the New Living Bible. Many years ago. I was privileged to, to meet him. And, uh, and he developed a one-year Bible. And he, and he developed where you read a bit of the Old Testament, a bit of the New Testament, a bit of Psalms, and a proverb for every day of the year. And I asked him why he did that. Because he just said, well, the proverbs have just got so much in them that you can just take one a, one, one a day. And you can do that, but we need to see how do we learn from them. We mustn't look at Proverbs, and I'm sure we've all read them, and I didn't know whether to read any today or not, but uh, you know, Proverbs is not a collection of simplistic formulas to guarantee success in our lives. In fact, what we need is we need wisdom about this form of wisdom. 
in order to understand it, in order to read it and apply it. Because one of the most common errors when reading Proverbs is to read into it what is not there. And so this part of the sermon, we will get on to another part in a minute, we'll go on to the first point, shall we? We want to understand Proverbs. Four ways that you can avoid getting them wrong. The first one is use use your logic. You see, read the plain meaning of the words, focusing on the central point. It's a bit like reading a parable. You know, sometimes you can read parables and they've got so many little kind of nuances to the story that you can focus on the little nuance rather than the central point. Get the main message of 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 a proverb. So we've got one there. Dishonest money dwindles away. It doesn't allow us to conclude that if money dwindles away in your pocket or in your wallet, that it must have been gained dishonestly. I don't know about you, but my money dwindles away. I have a wife and four children. It dwindles like nobody's business. you know. But it doesn't mean I can't conclude from that proverb that I gained it dishonestly. It's learning what it doesn't say. In fact, the Bible tells us many ways which where our money can, it dwindles away. Secondly, don't read one proverb in isolation to another one or to the rest of the scripture. It is vital not to look at an individual proverb and, and let it stand on its own. We, need, you, we use the Bible to help us interpret the Bible. Right? So our proverb then, in, in uh, Proverbs 13, 11... Um, what did we say it was? Dishonest money dwindles away. As an example, well, you can recall that the Bible's teaching about <coughs> excuse me about all material riches are temporary and unreliable. It's all going to fade away. Not just those that are gained dishonestly. You see, the Bible interprets itself, and no single verse or passage is self-contained, so to speak. I remember years ago, some of you have been around the block a bit. <clears throat> remember, who remembers in, in maybe this church, I don't know, I wasn't here in those days, we all, everybody got into territorial spirits, some evil spirit over your town. Remember all that? There's one verse in the Bible that refers to that, and yet whole books and theologies were being built on it. And I kind of think, well, it's not that I'm necessarily against some of these things, but I kind of think, where does it all come from? I mean, yeah, I want to be, be aware if there is a demon over our town. Or but we need to be careful how we interpret things. It all expands from nothing. Let's hold simply what has God said. So read things with other passages in mind. So in our particular proverb, it must mean that somehow dishonest money, yes, is temporary and unreliable, but it's somewhat more, in a somewhat more profound way, shall we say, if it was gained dishonestly, because God's blessing has been withheld. Right? It's not as though every money, every dishonest penny can slip through a criminal finger, is it? You know, the proverbs tell us plenty of things where, you know, sinners seem to enjoy their wealth that they gain dishonestly. So that leads to our third point. That is, don't put God on your time scale. In other words, many Proverbs will speak of certain actions leading to certain responses. In other words, you know, you'll get a reward by being obedient or you'll be punished if you were disobedient. You know, in such 
a case, it's important to recall what God says. He said it through the Apostle Peter to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't work to our time scale. When God says he's going to reward or a punishment, it doesn't mean say, you've done this and instantly that's going to happen then. What the Bible does make clear is that every promise of God will be fulfilled, but some will be fulfilled sooner than others. We've seen that when we've looked at prophecy, haven't we? There's this immediate fulfillment and there's a further fulfillment. So we need to not put God on our timescales. Fourthly, the most important one when I'm thinking about interpreting the Proverbs is to make God your goal of your obedience. Keep in mind the ultimate reason why we read the Bible. Now that's a test question for you, isn't it? Why do you read the Bible? So that we can go to house group and have the right answers and look clever. No. <laughs> doesn't work like that. The reason to read the Bible is to know God. To love God. And to follow God. That's the goal. And I need to say this particularly around the Proverbs because there's many, many Proverbs that will talk about if you do this, you will prosper. You will be rewarded. This will happen to you. This will be fine for you. And they're great. That's good. Those, those things that happen to you, yeah, we should want them. But that's not the goal in itself. The goal is to know God. To stay on the path of wisdom. And so that leads to the second major point I want to share this morning. And that's really to look at Jesus within these books of wisdom. You see, many Christians put Christ at the heart of their faith. Rightly so, that's exactly what we should be doing. But sadly, some become so centred on the New Testament that we forget what the Old Testament has to offer. And hopefully this series is beginning to change that. We're seeing the plans and purposes of God throughout the whole Old Testament. Actually, there is a very close connection between Jesus and the Proverbs. Jesus, after all, said all of the scriptures were written about him. And we need to see Jesus on every page. So here are four connections that I want to share between Jesus and the Proverbs. Jesus lived wisdom. Jesus lived wisdom. He personified those Proverbs and he demonstrated continual wisdom in every single thing he did. Recount that passage in Luke's Gospel where Jesus um, is uh, taken to the temple in his youth. Right, He goes there at 12 years old, taken to the temple, and he discusses theology with the teachers of the law there. And what do they say? Verse 47 of Luke, 12, Luke 2. Sorry, Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding. 
It's an amazing passage because that is sandwiched top and bottom between two wonderful statements about Jesus growing in wisdom. Before that particular incident when he was 12, there's an incident when he was about two or three, when he's presented at the temple in Luke 2, and it says, and Jesus was filled with wisdom. Two to three-year-old, filled with wisdom. When he's 12, everyone's amazed at his understanding. After the conversations in the temple, again age 12, verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom. You see, his entire life, he personified wisdom. He lived it out. He was marked by his display of wisdom. In Mark chapter 6, he says, Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that he speaks? It's what changed my life when it came to wanting to grow as a pastor, as a preacher. And you just look at verses like that and say, wow, when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. He spoke with wisdom. I want to be like that. I don't want to just ramble on at the front. Pray for me if I do. Jesus spoke such wisdom. Sermon on the Mount is packed with wisdom, isn't it? His teaching. Every parable is a kind of concentrated wisdom literature. It's got such instruction in there. Jesus lived it and spoke it. Secondly, Jesus is wisdom. Wisdom is inherent in who God is, isn't it? Just as God is perfect holiness and perfect powerfulness, perfect faithfulness, so he's also the perfection of wisdom. And Proverbs is a perfection of the expression of God's wisdom in a written form, given so that it can help us. Just as Jesus is the perfection of wisdom in a fleshly, earthly form, human form, a divine human gift. Just as Proverbs is more than just words on a page, it's the eternal word of God. So Jesus was more than a man. He was the living word of life who was from the beginning amongst us Paul says Jesus is wisdom from God the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge you see to see perfect wisdom just fix your eyes on Jesus the one who is the radiance of God's glory and his exact representation if you want wisdom look at Jesus Thirdly, Jesus is the way of wisdom. You see, God calls us to choose his way rather than the foolish way of the world. That's what the Proverbs are there for. They constantly say, this way. Are you going to go the way of the fool or are you going to go the way of the wise? And he's calling us to follow the way of wisdom. Proverbs contrasts the path of wisdom and the path of folly, while the New Testament does the same thing. Jesus does that, doesn't he? Which way will you follow? Will you follow me or will you follow the world? Paul put it like this, he says, we speak a message of wisdom, 
among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God has destined for your glory since time began. God's wisdom is for us in Christ, in his word. The wise choose to follow him. Isn't that why Jesus would finish his Sermon on the Mount with that simple picture then? Well, will you be the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand or the wise man who builds it upon the rock? Who is that rock but Christ himself? And Jesus supplies wisdom. Jesus promises to give wisdom to those who hear and receive his words. Promises disciples, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your enemies will be able to resist or contradict. That's quite something, isn't it? And here's one of my favourite verses in, uh, in, in Scripture. I think we're going on to the next slide. Uh, is there another one? Yes. This is a verse you need to memorise. Memorise that whole passage and learn to pray it. This is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may, what? Know him better. What was wisdom for? To know God better. Why do we read the Bible and learn all that? To know God yeah. That is some prayer to pray, isn't it? That's something we should pray for one another. I pray that God gives you the spirit of wisdom and insight and revelation so that you know him better. Not so that you can make a mint on the stock exchange, but that you know God better. You know Jesus better. anyone lacks wisdom they should ask God who gives generally generously Jesus is the perfectly wise man wisdom itself he's the way of wisdom and the giver of wisdom no wonder he was able to say to the teachers of the law one greater than Solomon is here Solomon just received it and wrote it down didn't apply it to himself. Jesus knew it, lived it, breathed it, demonstrated it, gives it to us. He can say, no one, what's, one greater than Solomon is here, so that we can say, we can say, everything is worthless compared to Christ Jesus my Lord. <coughs> For his sake I discard everything else, counting it all as rubbish, so that I might gain Christ and become one with him. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. You see, wisdom isn't about knowledge. Wisdom isn't about increasing our heads. Wisdom is about knowing Jesus and experiencing him in my life and it will flow out into those decisions that we'll do about our children and our money and our homes and our businesses and our relationships and everything else 
I want to know Christ. Solomon wrote about it. Jesus is it. (laughs) Have you ever watched one of those experiments where a mouse runs around the maze? Right? Trying to find the cheese. You ever watch one of those? You've probably seen them, or at least you can imagine it. Frequently going up the wrong path, hitting its head against a wall, a dead end, having to backtrack, find a new way in order to try and get to its reward. Eventually it gets there. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I can see that my life has often felt pretty much the same. A bit of a maze filled with a lot of obstacles. I've often been confronted with options which at first glance seem equally appealing, equally, you know, destined to help me be successful in something, only to find that actually when I've gone down that road it's been a dead end and I've ended up hurt at some times or even hurt others along the way. And like that mouse, I've had to spend a good deal of time just backtracking and restarting. And certainly as a pastor, I've witnessed many people over the years who are running through their own little maze of life, hitting their own dead ends, not knowing which way they're going, backtracking a lot, starting again a lot. I'm pretty sure that every one of us in our lives, and if it's like a bit of a maze like that, would love someone to help us. Someone to guide us and help us make better choices and better decisions about the things that really matter. Things like raising your children and handling your finances and living with the one you love how you control your speech, all the things of eternity, the way you do business. It's all there in the Bible. God has given us a guide in his word. But we mustn't be confused when we read those Proverbs and there are plenty of them that give you lots of those pithy little things to say. You know, we could read, read one out at just at random, couldn't we? Right? A false witness will not go unpunished. You know, wow, that's a good little thing good there. We could, we could dwell on that and write, do a sermon just on that. But actually, we're not just to read them all as little tweets that say this is the way we should live. We kind of take the whole and embrace what God is saying. But most importantly, we need to recognize we need Jesus. Just reading a proverb every day will not guarantee that you think and act and behave the right way. Graham Goldsworthy in his book, According to the Plan, says this, God gives the framework for godly thinking, but he will not do our thinking for us. We are responsible for the decisions we make as we seek to be wise and avoid being foolish. See, a sermon like this will not be enough. It'll 
you know, take you so far, but that's all. Reading the Bible every day and learning it and knowing it will not be enough. It can only take you so far. Like that mouse will continue to make some wrong turns and hit some brick walls and have to backtrack and have to start again. But I can guarantee you one thing. If you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will give you wisdom. It wouldn't surprise me that there are in this room right now many, many people who've got some big decisions to make. And you need not just a pithy statement from the Proverbs to help to be your guide. You need to embrace all of God. And I say, I need the Lord Jesus to be my king to rule over my heart, to be my guide. Not living on the decisions that other people have made, but living on Jesus who needs to be King of Kings in your own life. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. I want to put it to you that the end of wisdom is knowing God. Knowing him personally. Knowing Jesus. Knowing his spirit speaking into our lives. The reward at the end of the maze, you see, is not just the fact that you've been successful and you've got out of trouble or anything, but actually that you know him and you love him and you follow him and you spend eternity with him. It's all about him. We just grab hold of him. So are you struggling with something? I know I am. Don't surprise me there's people here who've got an uneasy marriage. Wayward children. Dodgy finances. Career choices and decisions to make. All sorts of decisions. What would we do if we didn't have our eyes fixed on Jesus? We will follow the way of the world and its folly, what seems convenient. Instead, what we need to do is be quiet and still before God and say, Lord, I need you. And like Paul said in that Philippians verse, you know, I want to, is it still on the screen there, is it? Counting everything else as rubbish. To gain Christ. To become one with him. I want to know you Lord Jesus. And experience your power. Resurrection power. Wisdom isn't just a subject where we can just say, oh that was interesting. It's actually a person. And a person who says, ask. And it will be given to you. One of the music group would like to come and join me as we bow our heads and pray. Father God, God of all wisdom, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-loving, may our eyes be fixed on you.
May our hearts be open to you. May we not just see these books in history and say they were interesting things, but may we see Jesus and receive him and what he says into our lives. And for that one that needs real guidance, real wisdom for some things that they need to do, to say, decisions to be made, Lord, may they call on you who has promised to anyone who asks, they will receive. Apply this word in the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, another.